Well, we've come to an interesting part in the gospel according to John, and it, it forces us to ask questions about life and about death. If you knew that you were going to die tomorrow, then what would you do today? If you knew you were going to die tomorrow, who would you want to be with today? What would you want to tell your loved ones? If you knew tomorrow was it, what would you want to tell your enemies? What would you want to tell God? On a Thursday night about 2,000 years ago, Jesus gathered with his closest friends to celebrate a final meal with him, and he knew that he was going to be murdered the next day. And he'd spent three years traveling around Palestine with these 12 men whom he had chosen, and they were average, ordinary, sinful men. Their names were Simon Peter and Andrew, his brother. There was another set of brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. There was Philip and Bartholomew and Thomas. There was Matthew. And there was another James, the son of Alphaeus. And there was Thaddeus. And there was another Simon, the zealot. And of course, Judas. And these men had heard Jesus over the course of three years teach and preach to crowds of thousands. And they'd also seen him take time to be with individual people, to listen to them, to heal them. And his disciples had, had seen Jesus prove that he was God by doing all these signs and wonders, like turning water into wine. And he fed thousands of people using only a few loaves of bread and some fish. He walked on water. He'd made men who were paralyzed healed and walk again. He'd given sight to men who had been born blind. He'd healed the sick. He'd raised dead people back to life. And these disciples had heard Jesus tell him, tell them that he must die. He told them this, I must die and be buried and after three days I'll rise again. And, and now Jesus is telling them at this last supper that the hour had come for this to happen. And at the Last Supper with Jesus, then, what's Jesus going to do? <laughs> this is it. It's the last hurrah. What's Jesus going to do? What's he going to tell us? And we're about to find out. Okay, so we've come to John chapter 13, and it begins a five-chapter record of this Last Supper, of what Jesus says and does. And so if you've got your Bible with you, turn to John 13, verses 1 to 17. And we're going to see what Jesus said at this Last Supper and what he did and also why this matters for you and for me. John 13, 1 to 17. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Dear Lord, we thank you uh, for this passage of Scripture that you've given to us to meditate on today. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would please use your word to move in power in this church today, in the churches in our community today, in the word that they're going to hear, um, work in our hearts. Please show us today how awesome you are. Please make us eternally joyful and satisfied in you. And in the name of Jesus, we command all evil forces to stay away from us and from this property. Lord Jesus, we are um, your sheep, and we ask that you would please feed us now. Amen. 
All right, so we'll look at John 13, 1 to 17. And I want to begin just by looking at the first verse. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So the verse sounds a bit disjointed here in the ESV translation, but the main idea of the whole sentence is found in the last six words. That's what John wants us to know. He loved them to the end. He refers to Jesus, them refers to Jesus' own people, his sheep. And in the immediate context, it refers to his disciples. But it also refers to everyone who belongs to Jesus through faith in him. And the Apostle John's main point here is, is how Jesus treated his own. The most powerful person ever to walk the face of the earth, how did he treat others? With love. To the very end of his public ministry, to the very end of his life, Verse 1 says that Jesus' life had been characterized by love for his own who were in the world, and he loved them fully to his dying hours. Now it's time for the, the feast of Passover on Thursday night. Okay, So we have hundreds and thousands of Jews gathered in Jerusalem, and they're going to celebrate on Thursday night in their own homes this feast of Passover. And they would kill uh, and eat a lamb as they remembered how God had saved the Jewish people about a thousand years earlier. Remember the Jews had been enslaved in Egypt and God told them one night to mark their homes with lamb's blood and God would send a spirit of death throughout Egypt to kill the firstborn of every house because the Egyptian ruler Pharaoh ref uh, refused to let the Jews go. And so... Um, God would graciously pass over and spare those homes that were covered with the blood of the lamb. And God did just as he said. Um, he passed over and rescued the Jewish families and he instituted this feast of Passover for them so that they could celebrate this and remember his salvation every year. Throughout scripture, Jesus is referred to as the lamb of God the Lamb of God. Remember in John 1, this is the name, the first name he's given by John the Baptist. He says, behold, here comes the Lamb of God. And the understanding is that this Lamb of God, Jesus, would die for his people and cover them with his blood to save them from eternal death. And so here in John 13, we have Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, participating in the Passover feast, this feast which he has actually, ironically, come to fulfill. He is the Lamb of God, and he knew that he was the Lamb of God. And verse 1 says that his hour had now come to shed his blood for his people, and now he would leave this world and go back to God the Father. Now these disciples, remember, they didn't live in Jerusalem, and so they had to borrow a room to celebrate the Passover feast in. They borrowed the room of somebody's house in which they could eat the Passover feast, and Ancient Jews ate dinner differently than we do today. We talked about this uh, a little while ago when we talked about Mary washing Jesus' feet. Instead of sitting on chairs, they would have been lying down around a table, um, probably leaning on their left arm and eating with their right hand, and their legs would be pointed back toward the wall. And before we read about anything major happening at Jesus' Last Supper, we read about some invisible factors that are going to shape how this meal goes. If you look in verse 2, it says, 
during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So before Jesus and the disciples even entered this upper room, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. And we know from the other gospel accounts that Judas had already gone in private to the Jewish chief priests and he talked to them about how they could arrest Jesus. And, and so the chief priests gave Judas some money with the understanding that uh, Judas would be looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus in private when the crowd wasn't around. And so now here we are at the Last Supper and Jesus is gathered around a table with his disciples, including Judas, who has the spirit of the devil working on him. And Jesus knows this. Nobody else in the room knows it. And Jesus still welcomes Judas to sit across from him to eat dinner. And so the devil's invisible presence in this room is a factor that's going to shape how this dinner goes. And besides this factor, uh, we also read that Jesus has some invisible knowledge here uh, that's going to shape this dinner also. Verse 3 says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. And so besides knowing Jesus knows that uh, Satan's working um, in Judas's heart, he also knows two other important facts. First, Jesus knows that God the Father had given all things into his hands. And second, Jesus knows that he had come from God the Father and was going back to God the Father. So first, Jesus knows that all authority over heaven, over earth, all authority over the physical realm, the spiritual realm, belongs to him because God the Father had put it into his hands. God is the keeper of all the power, and everything that exists exists um, because God made it, and God sustains it, he holds it together, and it exists for the purpose of bringing glory to him. And all of this power has now been put in the hands of Jesus, God's son. Jesus, I mean, picture this, Jesus the God-man is reclining at this table across from Satan, or next to Satan, who is working in Judas's heart. And Jesus has all authority over Satan, now, Jesus is, a, he is, we read, horrified by the thought of the cross because he, more than anyone, fully understands the physical and spiritual torture that awaits him. But he's not horrified of Satan. Jesus is in, is in control, not Satan. <laughs> Jesus has divine authority over Satan and Judas. And Jesus will do with each of them what he wants to do with them. And also, it says that Jesus knows he is God the Son. He's come from God the Father. He's going to go back to God the Father. He knows this. And he knows how everything's going to turn out for him and how it's going to turn out for Satan and Judas and all of us. So we, knowing that Jesus uh, has um, full authority over every atom in the universe, knowing that Jesus fully knows what will happen here according to God's will, let's look at what Jesus does with it, okay? What does he do with this authority? What does he do with his divine will? Verses 4 to 12 say, Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking it. So he would have been, it says he'd taken a towel. He would have been in what we would say your underwear. And he would have taken a towel 
and put it around his waist. He looked like a humble servant. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you were clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, Not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet, and put on his outer, his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Okay. In Jesus' day, it was unheard of for a teacher to wash his disciples' feet. Okay. Often in ancient times, when you entered somebody's house, you would be offered a basin of water to rinse your own feet because everyone was wearing sandals and it was really dirty and dusty. Sometimes, maybe for a more wealthy person, a, a non-Jewish slave would wash your feet for you. But never would a Jewish person wash another Jewish person's feet. And it was unthinkable for a teacher like Jesus to wash the feet of his students. And that's why Simon Peter tells Jesus, Lord, you will never wash my feet. Foot washing was something for Gentile slaves. This was the humblest act of service. This was unworthy of the Lord Jesus. But Jesus told Peter that Peter could have no share with him unless Jesus washed him. He told Peter that this would make more sense afterward. And this afterward that Jesus is referring to is likely after the crucifixion and resurrection because this is what Jesus is doing here. In washing his disciples' feet, Jesus is not only showing his disciples the extent of his love for them, which he is doing that, and Jesus is not only leaving his disciples an example to follow, which he is doing, but he is also connecting this foot washing to his upcoming death and crucifixion. Jesus says the only way a person can share in his salvation is if he washes them. Is if he washes them. So in order for Jesus to take away your guilt and sin, he must wash you clean with his own perfect blood, which he alone has, and which he shed on the cross. And that's why Jesus didn't give Peter a choice. This is required. Jesus tells him, if you want any part of me, then you have to let me wash you clean. And Peter is, is still appalled by this idea of having Jesus wash only his feet. And so he, he, uh, he tells Jesus, then you've got to wash the respectable parts of me too, like my hands and my head. But Jesus says, your feet are the only part of you that are dirty. So I'm going to wash your feet. And then Jesus tells the disciples that not all of them are clean. And he means spiritually clean. He was referring to Judas because Judas had already rejected Jesus and he would soon betray Jesus publicly. 
And yet, knowing full well that Judas was harboring the thoughts of Satan, Jesus still bent down and washed Judas' feet. That's incredible. Jesus is set apart from any other person you and I have ever known. Pierce, he's in a, he, he is in a league of his own. This is what it means that God is holy. He is set apart. He is completely different from you and me. His grace and mercy and love for sinners is unfathomable and unparalleled. He even washes the feet of his enemies. <laughs> Don't you want to be washed by Jesus too? Have you committed evil acts that you need forgiveness for? Have you had evil things done to you and you want to be purified and cleansed by God? Is your conscience polluted with unclean thoughts toward other people and maybe toward yourself? Then let Jesus wash you. Let Jesus wash you with his blood so that your sins will be taken away from you forever. Your guilt will be removed. You will be eternally protected by Jesus for eternity. Trust in Jesus today. Tell him you need him. Tell him you, you need him to save you. And if you're already a Christian, then confess your sins to Jesus that have temporarily defiled you. We're only halfway through the passage here, but I want to take a minute just for each of us to talk to God in private. We're all sinners. We're, for those of us in Christ, we're sinners and saints at the same time. But we need to confess to Jesus in heaven. We need him to purify us. So let's just take a minute of silence and talk to God. First John 1, 7-9 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, Jesus. Now let's read John 13, 12 to 17. When he'd washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example 
that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So when Jesus had finished washing all the disciples' feet, he put his clothes back on, he laid back down next to the table, and then he explains to the disciples what he's done. He tells them that he's given them an example to follow. Not just an example to admire, but an example to follow. Jesus tells his disciples three times in verses 14, uh, 15, and 17 that they should serve others just like he has served them. Okay, so the point is, Jesus wants us to serve one another. To serve one another. And then he gives us two reasons why. The first reason why we should serve one another is because he is our master. He is greater than us by far. And if he humbles and lowers himself to serve others, then we should humble ourselves to serve others also. And he says that if he is our Lord, if he is our teacher and we are his students, then we ought to follow in his footsteps if we're his students, if we're his disciples. He says that if he is our master and we are his servants, then we ought to do what our master tells us to do. And he says that if he's our king and we are his messengers, then we should do what he's told us to do. We should follow his example and do what he's commanded us to do because we, because we are not greater than him. As soon as we think we're too great to serve in any way. We're saying we're greater than Jesus. (laughs) In verse 17, the second reason Jesus tells us to serve one another is so that we will be blessed. We're doing God's will when we serve others. God looks favorably upon acts of service that are done for the glory of his name, and we are blessed because God is gracious. Jesus says we have to serve one another as he has served us. And in the immediate context, Jesus is telling us to serve other Christians, one another, in the body. In the words of Paul, we are to consider one another more significant than ourselves. We are to look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of those we're seated next to. We're supposed to look to the interests of those in our community groups, of those that we're leading in ministry and of those we're following in ministry. Because in order for this church, Cedar Home, and the big church, the universal church, God's church, to increasingly look like Jesus, we must increasingly become a people and a church that serves. We must be a serving people. And that's why gospel-centered service is one of our four purposes at Cedar Home. And when we consider all that the Bible has to say about serving one another, we know, that, we know this. We know God's goal isn't merely to make us into people who do good things. We know that. More than that, God wants to change our hearts. Okay? God wants us to have servants' hearts. God wants us to love to serve others. Because serving is how we get to bless others with the love of God. Serving is how we receive the blessing of giving away God's love. 
Serving is one of the main ways that we worship the Lord. Serve one another as though you're serving God and not man. And when you do that, there's no act of service that's too low. Because you're doing it for God and not for people. God wants our hearts. And we want to serve others because we love doing what the Lord commands because he's given us new hearts. That's the only reason why. Because he's given us new hearts. And we love acting how he acts because we want to become like our master, like our teacher, like the king. We don't serve others because we believe it will give us a better chance of going to heaven. And this is actually one of the things that distinguishes following Jesus from almost every other worldview and world religion. That we don't serve others because we believe in karma. That if we do good things to others, we will be repaid in life through good things being done to us. We don't serve others so that we can hold a position over others. We don't serve others so that others will think well of us. Wow, look at that person. Look how much they serve. We serve because we love Jesus and he's changed our hearts. <laughs> That's why we serve. We serve because it's now a joy for us to serve others, even when it costs us. When it co- it, serving sacrificially costs your time. It's going to cost your energy. It's going to cost your money. But because of the new hearts that the Holy Spirit's given us and is continuing to refine in us, serving others becomes a true joy. And when God does this for us, when he opens our eyes eyes to the joy of serving others, all sorts of new opportunities open before us to serve the Lord and to serve others. And, And there's not a quota that any of us meet, at which point we can say we're done serving, right? It's not like you reach a certain age and say, well, I did my time serving the church, and now it's someone else's turn to serve the church. You can't come to the end of your work day and say, well, I spent all day serving my boss, and now it's time to start thinking only about me. It's not to say we don't need to rest sometimes. Of course we need to rest sometimes, but this is what happens. By God's grace, serving others often transforms into a life-giving activity rather than a life-draining activity when we do it for the glory of God. The word serve, it simply means minister. To minister to others. To help others. To help others using your time, your energy, your money. And we can help others in a lot of ways. We can serve others by the way that we treat them. We can help others by what we do for them. We help others by the way we talk about them when they're not in the room. We can help others by the way we talk to them with our tone of voice and the words we say. We can serve others by the way we listen to them. I don't know if you've ever felt served by the way someone has taken time to listen to you. We can serve others by the way we think about them. And we serve others by what we sacrifice for them. I was just thinking, okay, let me give a few examples of of what it looks like to serve others for the glory of God. Just some ideas, okay? Recently, I heard about a child in our children's ministry who really needs and benefits from having an adult help him during junior church. And there's also happens to be an adult volunteer 
in the children's ministry who especially connects with this child. And so that adult volunteer said that they would like to serve this child and their family by pairing up with him one-on-one every week that he's at church. And that's a big commitment. (laughs) Since that means the volunteer was going to have to miss this. But this volunteer said that they plan to listen to the sermons online during the week so that they can stay connected to the worship services while also continuing to serve this child and their family. And this adult volunteer is symbolically washing the feet of this child. Washing the feet of this child's family. And they're happy to do it. They're happy to do it because they love Jesus. And Jesus has changed their heart. And it's a beautiful picture of serving others. As a church, a corporate church, we want to be thinking about ways we can serve our community, right? And, and this world. And just one tangible way we want to serve our community is by we want to intentionally pray for this Church Creek Park, which is in our neighborhood and which has a lot of issues and darkness spiritually there. We want to use that space and serve the city by fellowshipping there and reaching out to the neighborhood there. So that's, why, that's the reason we're doing this sack lunch on the 26th at Church Creek. Uh, you can read about it in your bulletin. We want to serve. We want the light of Jesus to be there, not the darkness of Satan. And so we want to come in and take over that park. And I'm excited because I heard about several other churches um, and youth groups who are planning on doing events there because they're feeling the same need in our community. And so it's exciting to be part of that. Also, I heard this week that our local elementary schools continue to need adult volunteers who will help kids learn how to read, who may not have parents or the ability or whatever to help them read. This is just an extra need in our school, school district. And this, we've helped in this way in the past, and this would be a great way for us to serve our community this fall if you're able to do that. In the past, it's just looked like volunteering one hour a week to go in and sit down with a student in the hallway and help them learn how to read. In the body, one of the best ways, one, one of the best ways we can serve one another is by remembering each other in prayer. Um, I imagine some of you are really good about this, about remembering others in prayer. Some of us need to grow in that area, but uh, even a one-sentence prayer to Jesus on behalf of another person is an incredible act of service that we often undervalue. Praying for others is a great way to get our eyes off of ourselves and to remember others and to serve them. And also, um, because because we know from the book of Acts and from... Um, the Bible as a whole, that God appoints the times and places for us to live. That means that God has you where you are right now for a purpose and to be on mission where you're at. And so you can ask God to show you someone else in your context whom you can serve. Um, on Thursday morning, I was heading out of town. On, uh, is this 532? Is that what it's called? 532. Um, and I was in a rush to an appointment and I was praying to God, okay, God, I've, this week I'm praying about serving others, so show me, please, someone else I can serve today. Not so I can have a sermon illustration, but uh, so that I can live what I'm preaching here. And after saying that, I looked down at my gas gauge and saw that it was low, and so I needed to make a quick stop at that gas station. 
and uh, I turned, this all happened in a matter of 15 seconds. I turned right to go to the gas station. Just around the corner after I'd prayed this prayer was an old blue minivan pulled to the side of the road and a man standing next to it and he was holding the sign that said, I need a jump. And I thought about it for a brief second, right? You're trying to, I'm driving, I'm making the call and I'm like, that looks suspicious. Nobody, nobody just wants to jump. And so I just kept going. I just went down the road anyways. And I drove past him down to the gas station when all of a sudden, as soon as I pulled into the gas station, it hit me. That was the person I just prayed for. I just asked God to show me someone to serve, and he did, and I blew it. And so I turned around at the gas station, and I was hoping nobody else had helped him yet. Because I'm like, that's my guy, okay? <laughs> that's my guy to help. So everyone else stay away from him. And... Uh, I drove down the road, pulled up in front of him, and I, he had his jumpers all ready to go. So I'm like, wow, this is legit. So I popped the hood and uh, got out of the car, and we jumped his car, and I talked to him for a minute, and I said, sir, I got to tell you, I'm a Christian, and I was just praying to Jesus that he would show me someone to serve, and 15 seconds later, I saw you. And the man said, well, that's funny. I was just standing here praying that God would send someone to help me. <laughs> And, and then I, I said it again. I confessed to the man that I really didn't want to stop for him, except that I felt Jesus was telling me to stop. And it was just important to me that the man understood that the Lord was to credit for this. He was the God, Jesus specifically, was to credit for helping this man and not me. So if you ask God to show you someone to serve, then expect him to answer and stay alert for who he puts in your path. There are countless ways we can serve one another. Uh, on our church website, uh, there's a Get Involved section, and it has a, a list of dozens of ways you can serve in our church and our community. And there are countless of ways that we can even serve our enemies. May God give us hearts that want to do this, that want to serve others. May he give us eyes to see how we can serve those around us wherever we are. And then would he give us the courage and the will and the power to actually do it? To do it. Jesus, if you think about Jesus' life, his entire mission from God the Father was one of service, one of serving others. He left heaven, he came to earth to serve others. He preached and he taught to serve others. He performed signs and wonders, miracles, healings, in order to serve others. He washed feet to serve them. He went to the cross to serve others. He rose from the grave to serve others. And Jesus wants to serve you today. Jesus offers to wash you clean from your sin and guilt. He offers to adopt you into his family and to keep you close to him as his son or daughter forever by the power of his blood, which he has already shed on the cross. Talk to Jesus today. Trust in him for life, and he will give it to you. And for those of us whom Jesus has already saved eternally, whom he, he's making us more like himself, let us pray that he would give us servants' hearts. Let's keep our eyes wide open to ways that we can serve one another in our homes and in our church and in our neighborhoods and in our jobs, because this is it. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. We are God's plan for this broken world.
And it is our pleasure now to serve others because God served us first. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage, and we are humbled at the idea of you washing our feet. But you did. And you have washed our feet by going to the cross and by rising from the dead. And we thank you for that, God, and we can't repay you for that. And it's all because of your grace that we accept this gift and thank you for it. And we just pray that your Holy Spirit would fill us with a thankfulness and gratitude for this, uh, with a heart of worship towards you and a heart of servanthood, God, toward you, which is um, acted out through our, the way that we serve one another. Um, you are our master. We are your slaves by your grace, and it's our privilege to serve you. So please show us how you want us to do that, Lord. And thank you, God, that even in the serving, you bless us, and we are blessed by doing it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.